This is a new month. It is February. We are starting a new series. And what we typically do in February is we do a series on relationships because it's the month of love. You know, it's Valentine's Day and all that good stuff. So we typically do something about relationships. And uh, we're, gonna, we're doing it again this year. It's we're taking a little different spin on it. It's called Enough About Me. And uh, we're, we're going to be talking a, a lot about relationships, but really about what it looks like to be, to be healthy. Uh, how many of you know that the, the biggest issue in most of our relationships is me? Um, not me as in, in your relationships. You and yours, me and mine. And um, that's something we have to deal with. In fact, it's so important that we are healthy spiritually, uh, mentally, emotionally, and all those things. And the Bible is a great resource for us and how to have healthy relationships and how to be healthy and how to be self-aware. Uh, in fact, I think it's one of the most spiritual things we can do that shows and proves the transformation and the power of God in our lives is when we are self-aware and know who we are in Christ. And so this month we're gonna be talking about uh, enough about me. And uh, I'm excited to, uh, to start today with this, kicking off this series. And in fact, um, I'm gonna give you my text verse. It's gonna be out of Luke 4. And starting in, in verse one, I'm reading a lengthy passage here. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, it will be on the screen behind me as well. But this is, the, this is right after Jesus was baptized in the Jordan and the Holy Spirit descended on him like a dove and he was full of the Spirit. And immediately from there, God leads him into the desert. And uh, we're gonna read this passage together. I'm gonna ask you to stand with me if you would please, just in honor of reading God's word together. Uh, Luke 4, verses 1 to 13, it's a lengthy passage, but stay with me because it's really good. Uh, it says, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the desert, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them he was hungry. The devil said to him, if you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Jesus answered, it is written, man does not live on bread alone. Then the devil led him to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world, and he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor, for it has been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want to. So if you worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered, it says, do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished all his tempting, he left him until an opportune time. The title of my message today is the, the namesake of our series. It's Enough About Me. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we love you today. We thank you for your word, God. It is your word that transforms us. My words are nothing without the power of your spirit working through it. So God, would you move me out of the way today and do what you wanna do in every one of our lives, God, for your glory, for our good, for your kingdom, and for our purpose. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. And everyone said, amen. amen. Before you're seated, turn to your neighbor and say, enough about me. Yeah, some of you said it with conviction. Some of you said it just because I asked you to. You ever heard about the, uh, the guy that went on a blind date and he was like sitting across from this woman, he was talking about himself for a long, long time and, and uh, after a while he finally said, you know what, that's enough of me talking about me. Why don't you talk about me for a while? Uh, <laughs> that's what you call a narcissist. Um, that is not what this series is about. Uh, but if I were to make the statement 
and say that, you know, our culture is becoming more and more self-centered and self-focused, most of you would probably agree with me, right? Based on the evidence we see, based on observations, kind of seeing where our society is going, what we're seeing is that the symptoms of narcissism are pretty prevalent in society today. And, uh, you know, it's always been the tendency of humans to be self-centered and selfish. You know, we have that self-preservation that's built into us. Uh, but because of the platforms we have today, it seems like the monster is being fed more and more all the time. And uh, it's, it's one of those things that's a challenge in society, and it's something that uh, we're seeing the effects of it. Uh, I don't think it's coincidence that people would agree that people are more self-focused and that uh, there's an epidemic of toxic and broken relationships. Uh, there's an epidemic of mental health that we hear about all the time, depression, suicide, anxiety, fear, insomnia, all these things. Um, we're seeing all this stuff, and so the question would be then, well, what is the connection? Um, and you know, it's interesting because when you look at situations, you look at dynamics in society and even in, in, in uh, personal psyche and psychologic uh, tendencies, the secular and the spiritual don't typically agree very often, right? They're usually at odds in a lot of things. Uh, but this is one of the areas where the secular and the spiritual are in complete agreement. The secular society, in fact, I, I read a quote from a, a pretty well-known psychologist this week, and we're gonna put the quote up because I want you to see it. It says that if you wanna be miserable, think about yourself. There is no difference between living for yourself and being miserable. So what we're seeing here is that even society sees that when we just become self-centered, if we're, we're egocentric, then every, and when everything is about us, that it literally makes us miserable. It, it makes us, we are, we are acting in such a way that we're not designed to act. In fact, this psychologist goes on to say there's actual clinical data to back up these claims. That the more someone is focused on themselves, the more miserable they are. And I don't know how they do this in a clinic, clinical study, uh, but I'll take him at his word. And uh, it's, it's really fascinating to me, and I love it when secular catches up with the spiritual. When society catches up to what the Word of God's been saying for thousands of years. We know that we are not meant to live for ourselves. We know that we are meant to live in such a way that we are preferring our brother, that we are sacrificing for, for others in our life. You know, Jesus said the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God first, and then to love your neighbor as yourself. And it's because that's God's plan for us. He says, if you don't deny yourself, you're not worthy of me, that we are called to live in such a way. And so now even society is seeing, man, when you just live for yourself, you're, you're on a pathway to misery in your life. And uh, it's, it's something that's incredibly prevalent in society today. And it's part of the reason we wanna do this series talking about enough about me, that it's not just about me. There's a place for me in my life, of course. It's my life, it's me, I, I gotta have a part, and we have to... We do self-preserve, we do take care of ourselves, but we're not the center of our world. We're not the center of our own universe if we are living the life of faith. So, because here's the thing, we're not victims of this cultural push. We, we can rise above the narcissistic groupthink that is so prevalent today because of the fact that we are living for a different purpose. We are living by a different set of standards based on God's plan for us and not on our own plan or even the world's plan. And to do this, there's an important principle in faith that we have to have clarity and understanding in our life. And that is the one of identity. Identity is huge. I'm gonna to talk to you a good bit about uh, identity today. It's, and it's something that too many of us, if, you are a, if you're a Christian, you're here or you're listening online, if you're a Christian, 
Many of us as Christians, we have an understanding of identity to some degree, but for many of us, we know it here, but we don't necessarily know it here. And it has to be something that completely gets in our heart. And to, to, to explain identity, it's really simple. Identity just answers the question, who am I? Who am I? You know, many go on a journey in life, at some point in life, to discover who they are. Not just people of faith, but lots of people just get to a place where we are innately designed to want to know who we are. What is my identity? What is my, who, who is this person that, that I'm living, this shell that I'm living in? Who is it? And the irony is that for many people, when they go on this journey, it does kind of become narcissistic and it becomes about just pleasing yourself and living for yourself. But the irony behind that is that if we do it in faith, when God, if we pursue our identity based on God's word, based on his plan for us, it's the opposite of narcissism because what you find out is that your life isn't really just about yourself and that your identity just isn't really just about you. I, I talked about purpose just last week, talking about in, there, in our He Is series, that he is our purpose and that our purpose goes, when we become a follower of Jesus, our purpose goes beyond just ourself and goes to living for him first. And he gives us a greater purpose in our life. And it's something that we have to understand in our life because all of this speaks to our identity. It's about discovering who we are in him, not just who we are. The question isn't really just who am I? The question is more whose am I? If you really wanna understand your identity, it's about understanding whose you are. You're not just your parents as a kid. You're not just uh, the relationships that you have in this life but you are actually a child of the king. In fact, in John 1, I love what John says when it comes to who we are, talking about our identity. In verse 12 and 13, he says, to all who receive him, speaking of Jesus, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children not born of natural descent, nor of human decision or of a husband's will, but born of God. And then in John's epistle, in his first epistle, in 1 John uh, three and verse one, one of my favorite verses in all the Bible, it says, how great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. It's so good. Like, how great is he that I, basically John's saying here, like, I don't deserve to be called a child of God. It's only because of the love he's lavished on me. It's, it starts with him, it ends with him. And his love towards me, and he makes me a child of his but not everyone's identity is in Christ. Only those who believe in his name, as John 1 says. Only those who have traded their life for his. Those who have, have understood and believed that Jesus is who he said he is and that he came and he died on a cross for our sins and that he rose from the dead and he's now at the right hand of the Father and that when I give my life to him and put my life in his, that I become a child of God. And that becomes my identity. This is who I am. And if we don't start with this foundation, everything else is moot. Everything else is shifting sand. Everything else is fragile. Everything else is going to eventually collapse. If the foundation of who we are is not built on knowing that we are his, that we are part of his family. And I could tell you today, if you have not had a revelation in your life of that, if you, maybe you're a Christian here, but it's like the whole idea of you being a child of God is almost just kind of just boilerplate stuff that you don't really give much thought to. Can I, can I just plead with you today to just stop right there and make it a priority in your life? 
to get that revelation and that understanding. The fact that you are a child of God should move your heart. It should move you, it should motivate you, it should impact your life, it should impact your decisions, it should impact your insecurities, it should impact your relationships. Knowing who you are in Christ and knowing that he is your father and you are part of his family is not just some oh by the way idea, it is the foundation of your life. And if, you, if it's there and you build on it, you can actually live a wonderful life understanding who you are, where, where some of the things like those insecurities that can mess us up Instead of those things being overwhelming and consuming our life, they become something that's a little more manageable. You know, none of us are ever gonna live without any insecurities as long as we live, not until we get to be with Jesus. But they don't have to dictate our life. They don't have to control our life. They don't have to trigger us. We don't have to get triggered every time something touches those insecurities. But if we don't have our foundation on knowing who we are in him, that's exactly what it will do. But his plan for us is that we would have this understanding, that we would know our identity is in him. And to build on that, I could, I could talk about that, that could be a series in and of itself, but I wanted to just lay that foundation today because I wanna to talk to you about identity and the fact that our identity, even if you've had this understanding, let's say you had that revelation and you know that you know that you're a child of God and that, and that it matters to you and it has impacted your life, even knowing that it's not a one-time thing because your identity is always under attack. I say it again, your identity is always under attack. It will be under attack until the day you go to be with Jesus. So it's not like you could just, oh yeah, I know I'm a child of God and just kind of coast on that for the rest of your life. You have to know how to resist the attacks and the forces that come against you because I can tell you one of the highest things on your enemy's hit list is your identity. Because I said your identity is your foundation. If he can attack your foundation, he can do a lot of damage in your life. So he's always going to attack your identity because knowing who you are, knowing what gives you value is huge. And consequently and conversely, if you don't know who you are and you don't find your value in that, the enemy, everything else in your life is cream cheese. He's got you. You have an enemy that is incredibly coy and smart and knows how to attack you better than you know how to defend yourself against him. Apart from God, there's no way you can defend yourself against the enemy. And he is very good at what he does. He's the greatest predator in the history of the universe. Now, I'm not here to give glory to Satan, okay? I'm, I'm bringing awareness for all of us because it's something we have to understand when it comes to our identity that he is attacking it in your life. He would love nothing more than to fracture your identity. And the way he attacks is very, very cunning and coy, okay? In fact, the word attack isn't even a great word because the connotation of the word attack means, to, to me it sounds like, you know, it's real blatant, it's aggressive, and uh, you know, it's, it's violent even. You know, when I think of like, if I'm walking down the road and I get attacked, I'm not thinking it's something that I wouldn't notice. I feel like if I'm getting attacked, I would know it right away because I'd have to defend myself. Right? Well, can I tell you today, your enemy, the enemy of your soul is so good at attacking you that oftentimes you don't even know it's him. That's how good he is. So it's not, it's not this blatant where he 
comes into your room at night as the boogeyman and stands over you with sharp teeth and he's snarling at you and he's got horns and a pointed tail and he's looking down at you and he's saying, you're never gonna amount to anything. You're no good. No one's ever gonna love you. You're ugly. You're dumb. He doesn't do those things because if he did, we'd know it. His attacks are very cunning. His attacks, in fact, he's really good at making you feel like his attacks are actually your own thoughts. And we have to recognize this. And he's attacking your identity. He's attacking what your makeup and who you are and who God has made you to be. It's one of his biggest targets because so much of the dysfunction in our lives springs from a fractured identity. I would go as far as to say the overwhelming majority of the dysfunction in our lives is from a fractured identity and not really understanding who we are in him. I know it personally because as I've grown and, 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 and my foundation in him has gotten stronger and stronger, I've seen a lot of that dysfunction just kind of weeded out of my life because so much of that dysfunction is based on, well, I've got to, you know, I'm, I've got to prove myself. I'm, I've got pride. Nobody's going to treat me like that. You know, you know who I am or whatever it might be, or somebody, you know, beats you down or makes fun of you or does something, you know, I, I'm like many of you, I had close family members in my life that, that told me I wasn't going to amount to anything. Right? I remember overhearing an aunt of mine one day saying like, that I was going to end up in prison. And I was like 11 years old. And I, you know, I was mischievous, but I was adorable. <laughs> so I don't know where that came from. You know? But it hurt my feelings. I remember it. To this day, I remember it. I know where I was. And if she knew that I heard her, she'd be devastated. But if, if I'm not careful, I can live my life trying to prove her wrong. I'm going to prove all those naysayers wrong. You said I'm not going to amount to anything? Watch this. That is not how we live our life. And if you know your identity, if you know who you are in Christ, you live not to prove others wrong. You live to prove Jesus right in your life. That's how you approach it when you, when you have your identity in him. Yes, praise God for that. So much of that in our life, the dysfunction, the things that we deal with are because of a fractured identity. However, a person that knows who they are in Christ is very dangerous to our enemy. Very dangerous. We are effective because we're not derailed by every little thing. We're not triggered by everything that might not go away or, or go our way or, or the things that might get on our nerves don't have to make us go off the rails or lose sight of what we're doing in life. And when we know who we are, our insecurities that have crippled us, debilitated us and held us back in life, go from controlling our life to actually being manageable, to being things that we can see for, with perspective and not just based on how we feel in the moment. And when, we, when our identity is attacked, how we respond to those attacks is everything. And Jesus showed us how to respond from my text verse. And I wanna spend the rest of my time here kind of breaking down this, this this verse, this passage of scripture where Satan comes at Jesus and tempts him. He tempts him three different times. I'm going to show you these three temptations and show you kind of how the enemy works because the enemy, the way he attacked Jesus is the way he attacks us, right? The goal when he attacks is to fracture our identity. He was trying to fracture Jesus's identity. Now it was an exercise in futility because Jesus defeated him, but we're not always so strong and secure. Sometimes he gets us, right? 
But his goal is to fracture our identity. The method he uses to do that is to make it all about me. You see in these temptations how he tried to make it about Jesus. Come on, Jesus, just, it's about you, right? He tries to get him to focus on himself, just like he does for us. He tries to get us to focus on ourselves, and what that does, it fractures our identity in Christ. I mean, his goal for us is to cause us to reject God, to be self-destructive, to embrace the world, all those things. But he does it by hitting our identity, by making it all about me. And man, do we fall into that trap so often in our life. We can so easily slip into that trap if we're not careful. But the word gives us the outs. It gives us the way that we can fight against our enemy. Because remember, again, you're gonna see this theme. The enemy's attacks don't look like attacks. In fact, sometimes they look like it's from God. And sometimes they look like it's from us. Sometimes it's just something that kind of makes sense. So it's not a lion jumping on you, trying to kill you and devour you. It's much more cunning than that. So let's go ahead and look at it, the temptation of Jesus. The first one was in Luke 4 and verse 3. I'm going to read that verse again. It says, The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. That seems pretty harmless, right? That doesn't sound like an attack to me. Does it sound like one to you? I mean, Jesus was hungry. It just said he hadn't eaten in 40 days. But remember, his attacks are subtle. He says, tell this stone to become bread. So how is he attacking him here? Well, first of all, he's attacking him by questioning the truth. He says, if you are the son of God, dot, dot, dot. It doesn't matter what he says after that. He was questioning the truth. Do you know one of Satan's favorite words in all of language? We think it's the four-letter words, which he probably likes those too. But his favorite, one of his favorite words in all of English is the word if. He loves to put if in our heads. You know why? Because if sows doubt. And he's trying to sow doubt in our minds. So he starts with Jesus saying, if, if you are the son of God. Now he wouldn't say that to us because we all know we're not the sons of God. But what he says to us is, if God is so good, why is there so much suffering in your family? If God is just, why are murderers getting away with it? If God is a healer, why, why did your mom die from cancer? See how he gets us to question the truth? All he's got to put in there is if. And it starts to make you think, hmm, maybe he's not good. Maybe he can't always do what he wants. Maybe he can't heal. Maybe he's not always just. And he wants to sow that doubt in our head. He, he attacks us by questioning truth in our life. Truth from the word of God, truth from something God has spoken to you as a, as a rhema word, whatever it is, he tries to question the truth in your life. And that's exactly what he did to Jesus. And then he attacks us by appealing to our rationale. <laughs> that doesn't sound like an attack either, does it? That sounds like something really good, especially if you're real practical and rational. He's he appeals to our rationale. Jesus was hungry. So he says, hey, why don't you eat? I know there's no bread here, but you can turn that stone to bread. Get some food. Why would God want to keep you from food? It just makes sense that you would eat. It's been 40 days. That's, that's, the, that's the long fast. That's the super spiritual one. So you should be done. Why don't you go ahead and eat something? And it seems practical. It seems rational. And that's exactly what he does to us. You'd say, why? Why wouldn't God want you to do something that makes you feel good? Why would God want you to stay in an unhappy marriage? I mean, if I was God, I'd want you to be happy. You know, do what feels good. Do what's, do what's fun and nice. And 
man, just enjoy the fruits of your labor. You want to you wanna go buy a new house even though you don't need it and go into huge debt that you can't afford? You work hard. You should be able to do that. You know, he uses rationale to attack us, which is what he did to Jesus. How many of you know that following Jesus doesn't always look rational? <laughs> In fact, a lot of times following Jesus doesn't look rational. Sometimes it even looks foolish. And the enemy will come looking like the good guy in a situation like that. He also attacks by leveraging our appetites. And this is a big one. This is a huge one for us. He will go after your appetite and try to leverage that to get you to do something that you shouldn't do. Jesus was hungry. Now he was fasting. His fast wasn't over yet, obviously. But he's saying, man, you're hungry. Why don't you eat some food? Going after his appetite. He loves to give tangible ways to satisfy our appetites. What's your, what's your appetite that the enemy can come in and drive a wedge and keep you away from your identity in Christ? Right? Maybe it's material things. Maybe you just love stuff. The enemy would come to you and say, like, hey, man, you should, you should go buy that car. I know you can't afford it, but you've been driving that other car for 10 years. Like, you, you want it. I know you want it. That thing's pretty. And it's going to have all the newest gizmos in it, too. So you should just go do that. What, what is your appetite where he would say, you know, maybe you just need to feel the, the, uh, the love of somebody else in your life. Like you, relationships are a big deal and you just, you want to be with somebody and the enemy knows that's your appetite. That's what, that, that's what can pull you away and even pull you out of the will of God for your life at times. He said, man, you should just, why don't you just go ahead and date that guy? Like, I know there's all kinds of red flags, but <laughs> you can change him. <laughs> I only hear women laughing. <laughs> What's that appetite that you have that he's going to come at? Because that's exactly where he's going to hit you. You know, I, I've, I've, never, I've never been drunk. I've never taken an illegal drug. It, was just not, it wasn't my thing when I was in school and high school and even early in my young adult life. I just I didn't do it. Um, and it was, it's never been a temptation for me. So you know what? The enemy has never, ever tried to tempt me to go and, you know, hey, Joy's out with some girls tonight. You should go get a 12-pack and slam it, you know? I wouldn't even know how to do that. <laughs> Probably take two sips and be like, this is gross, and throw it out. That's not, a, that's not an appetite for me, you know? But I got my own appetites that can draw me away, but that's not one of them. He's not gonna try to get me in that because that's not an option. He's gonna find out what you like that, that not even all, it's not even always a bad thing if you do it within, in the will of God. But if he can drive a wedge in there and, and get you to obsess or to make it such an incredible priority that it does become you between you and your relationship with the Lord, then that's what he's gonna do. He's always going and trying to leverage our appetites. Okay, so just from that one sentence, that's three things we see in how he attacks us. Let me go to the next temptation. It's in verses five to seven. It says, the devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor for it has been given to me and I can give it to anyone I want to. So if you worship me, it will all be yours. So here he attacks his resolve, his determination, his, his ability to stay the course. He's showing him these kingdom, the, the kingdoms of the world. Now, if you know your Bible, you know that Jesus said very clearly, my kingdom is not of this world. It's a heavenly kingdom, right? That's his kingdom. 
And Jesus left that kingdom to come to earth and he had to do his, his time on earth. He knew he was gonna die, he was gonna rise again, he was gonna go back to that kingdom. But while he was there, he had, he had to leave that kingdom. So Satan knows this, so he's taking him and showing him all these other kingdoms and he's saying, hey, you don't have to wait till you get that heavenly one back. Look at all these, I'll give these to you. He was testing his patience, his willingness, his ability to stay on course, to stay true to what God had called him to, to what he knew his plan was to be on this earth. And he tried to convince him, hey, why don't you just go ahead and take these? He wants to test his patience. He wants to test our patience. How often do we fail in this? Where we are tested, where we, have, we are given an option where we know we need to wait, because the Bible's clear that there's a lot of waiting on the Lord when you walk in this life of faith. In fact, if you're living for Jesus, you're always waiting for something from him, always. Because that's, that's how we should be living. But instead of waiting, he would say, hey man, I got some instant gratification for you right here. Right here it is, all you gotta do is take it. And that's exactly what he does for us. He tries to get us to, to take the easy way out. And man, living in a Western society makes it 10 times harder because we have so many things at our fingertips, so many things we don't have to wait for. And sometimes it's the Lord's plan that we wait. But he will give us those opportunities to not have to wait, and that is exactly how he will test us. He also tested his loyalty. He said, hey, if you worship me, you can have all these things. He tried to get Jesus to worship him, which you know, we know, we look at that and we think, man, we talk about, talk about barking up the wrong tree. You know, We knew Jesus wouldn't do that. But again, when t Satan attacks, he's good. So he's good at this in our life. He, he doesn't stand in front of us and demand that we bow down and worship him. You know, we have this visual of what we think worship is, but worship is so much more than just bowing down or even just singing songs. Worship is about what you give worth to. That's all worship means, giving worth. Whatever you give the highest worth in your life is what you worship. And so the enemy, Satan would try to get you to put things, anything, whatever it is, above God. And anything we put above God is what we're worshiping. So we're, none of us would actually worship Satan. But when we, allow, when we let him test our loyalty and we, we aren't willing to wait and we go towards those things that, that we know we shouldn't be going towards and we give that thing higher place than we're giving God, we're worshiping those things. And so he's always testing. This is, this is something we're confronted with on a daily basis of what we're going to worship. Yeah, I could say, oh, I worship God. And I can say all the right things and I can come to church and I can sing songs and have a worshipful heart in that moment. But worship isn't just for 30 minutes on a Sunday morning. Worship is your life. You worship something every minute of every day in your life. We are designed to worship. So you're going to worship something. And you can choose, you can worship different things at different times. That's not the plan. The plan is that we worship God, worship him and him alone. But whatever we're given that worth, where we're saying, God, I don't need you in this because I really want this right now and you're gonna make me wait, so I'm gonna do it. We are worshiping that thing. And that's exactly what the enemy does. Makes it look like, and he makes it look like it's our idea. Like, I just can't help it. I just really, sometimes he'll even make us think that, that God must want me to do this. Because I mean, he put it right in front of me. Of course he wants me to have that, right? But that's, you, a lot of times that's the enemy. And listen, this isn't meant to, scare us, it's not meant to discourage us. I mean, here's the good news. No matter how much we mess up and we miss this and we miss the mark and we, we, we worship other things, we give other things higher worth than we're giving to our God, every time we come back, he's there. 
Every time we repent, we turn around. The Bible is crystal clear. There's nothing that can separate us. And if we will come to him, if we will confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He's not sitting there tapping his foot saying, man, you messed up again. You just did this yesterday, dude. That's not what God does. That's what your friends do. That's not what God does. He receives us back. The, the bad news is the devil hates your guts. The good news is God loves you more than the, the devil hates you. And we can, we can stand on that and we can bank on that in our life. Praise God. Okay, last temptation here. We got Luke uh, 4, 9 to 11. It says, the devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. So here we have another attack from the enemy. And what he's doing here is he is attacking by questioning the calling or a promise from God. He's taken a, a promise from God in fact, he takes Jesus up on the temple. It's significant that he took him to the top of the temple. The temple itself was a symbol of the promise of God. He promised them they were gonna have a place to worship him. And so even that was a symbol of God's promise. He takes him up there and he quoted a promise from scripture and belittled it. By the way, the enemy can speak scripture all day long. All day long, he knows it better than you do. He's been studying it for thousands of years. He takes this passage of scripture, he takes this promise from scripture and he belittles it. And he says, hey, if this is true that the angels aren't gonna let you hurt yourself, you should just be able to jump. What's the big deal? Prove it, prove it. You trust God? He promised you're not, this is not gonna happen, nothing can happen to you, prove it. Put your money where your mouth is, Jesus. And how does, he, how does that look like for us? He will try to use something from God for your life, a promise, something he's promised you that you just knew, know God has promised you, the call that he's put on your life, his, his will for your life, maybe he's got a specific path that he's talked, that he's shown you that you are to go down. He, the enemy will try to use something from God to get you to question God. He'll use the, ex, the exact promise from God to get you to question him. And he's actually really, really good at it. How many of us have had something in our life that happened and in the moment you knew it was God? Nothing in the world could have convinced you it wasn't God. And days or weeks or months later, you're going, was that really God? Was that really God? And you, you think to yourself, it, it's probably just me. I just don't have enough faith. But again, the enemy is making you think it's you when oftentimes it's actually him. Well, if God's really, God's really that good, if that was really God, well then it hasn't been really smooth since then. And you start to think about every reason that it might not be God. The enemy wants to question the promise or the call of God. And then he will also, on top of that, he will make us question God's faithfulness and his love. And this is probably the biggest challenge for us as followers of Jesus. Where, we get, where God's faithfulness is called into question in our life. It's something everybody deals with on some level. In fact, you know, there's a, there's a whole movement of deconstruction where people are you know, breaking down their faith and, and a lot of those people are actually leaving the faith and a lot of it comes from this because they don't believe that God is faithful. Because they've had a situation and a circumstance that didn't look like they thought it should look and so to them, God's faithfulness shouldn't have looked like that and so they've left the faith. 
And this is a tactic of the enemy, that he will get us to question God's faithfulness in our life. If God's really faithful, he's telling Jesus, if God's really faithful, he's not gonna let you get hurt. Well, that means then if I get hurt, that God's not faithful, right? He says, hey, if, you know, the Bible says he's gonna work all things out for good, then why does your job stink? Why don't you have any friends that are trustworthy and faithful in your life? If he's working all things out for good, why do you just keep having all these financial issues? God's not faithful. And, and, and the enemy will do this, but we'll actually think it's ourselves and we're just being rational and practical and we're questioning the faithfulness of God. Next thing you know, many people leave the faith. Or some of us just limp along for the rest of our life, not really trusting that he's that faithful, but knowing enough to know I gotta stick this out. When in reality, he's faithful in everything. That he can't be unfaithful. That one of his names is actually faithful. It's all about understanding our identity in him and knowing who we are in him. And then you can see his faithfulness even in the worst of circumstances. When your identity, the foundation of your identity is in him, you can see his faithfulness when others can't see it. You can see it when it doesn't even make sense. You can see it in such a way that if you tried to explain it to someone, they'd think you were nuts. But you just know that he was faithful because you know him and you know who he is. In the midst of all of the enemy's attacks in our life, God is good and he is faithful. I, I wanna share one thing in closing. If, if, in my text verse, you see the first verse, in fact, they'll put it back up there. In, in, in uh, chapter four, verse one, it says, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the desert. So Jesus just got baptized, the Spirit descended on him like a dove. He's full of the Spirit. The Spirit leads him into the desert to be tempted by Satan, okay? That's what the word says. After it's all over, it said Satan left him waiting for an opportune time. The very next verse is verse 14, and it says Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. So he goes into the desert full of the Spirit. He comes out of the desert in the power of the Spirit. Just a happenstance that it has two different references to the Spirit. I don't believe the Bible has anything that's not intentional. And so he goes in full of the spirit, is tempted by the enemy, comes out victorious in the power of the spirit. What I would say that that means for us is that sometimes in our life, the power of God is not manifested until we've come through these temptations, until we have come through victorious in what the enemy has tried to do in our life. When we have resisted these attacks, we've resisted questioning his faithfulness, we've resisted being self-centered in our life, we've resisted uh, going for instant gratification and, and trying to please our own appetites. When we've stood strong against those things, we can, go, we can go from being full of the Spirit to actually walking in the power of the Spirit. And I believe that with all my heart, that there's time, now that, that's not a formula, okay? It's not something that, oh well, I, haven't, I don't feel the power of God in me, so I guess I'm failing. It's, it's, not, it's not cookie cutter, cut and dry every time, but there are, there are instances and there are times and seasons in our life that obviously the Spirit of God led Jesus into the desert to be tempted. Sometimes the Spirit of God will lead you into a desert and you will feel like you are fodder for the enemy. But he's got a plan, church. He's got a plan, he's got a purpose, and he wants to use you. And he wants to bless you and he wants to show you his love. He wants to show you and confirm to you that you are his child, okay? And sometimes we're gonna go through those things victoriously, other times we're gonna fail miserably. 
But at the end of the day, all that matters is that we have made ourselves right with God, that we have said where we have failed, we know that we have failed and we own it, we confess it, we allow God to cleanse us, make us pure as snow, and we keep going. That's his plan for us, praise God. Would you stand with me, please? Let's stand together. I wanna pray for us, let's, let's pray together. Just in response to this word, I'm thankful for the word of God. I'm thankful that we don't have to be afraid of the devil. We need to be more afraid of ourselves and our inability sometimes to recognize what he's doing in our life. He will make it look like these things are all you. They're coming from you, it's because of you. When in reality, he's just lurking in the corners, laughing at you. He will attack in ways that we don't even know he's attacking and we need to recognize it. And it starts with our identity, knowing who we are in Christ. That's my prayer for us today. In fact, let's pray. Lord, I pray today that each and every person under the sound of my voice would find their identity in you. Whatever that looks like, Lord. We're all at different places. We're all at different walks of life. We're all at different places in our faith. Some are just starting this journey of faith. Some have been doing it for 50, 60 years. But God, every one of us needs to find our identity in you. Show us what is fracturing our identity. Reveal it to us, Lord. And God, I pray that you would confirm with each and every one of us that we are a child of yours. That it's not about who am I, it's about whose am I. We are yours. God, let that be so, so much more than head knowledge for all of us. Let it be in our heart. Let it impact our lives in ways that, that it becomes a foundation that we can stand on, that no matter what storms come our way, we are standing firm because we know who we are in you. We thank you for it today, God. You are amazing. You are awesome. You are wonderful. And we love you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. And everyone said, amen. amen. God bless you.